This reading is Mark 10, 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I have kept all of these since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text that Marcy read to us today is one of the most famous incidents in Jesus' ministry. It's recorded by all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this incident is uh, contained in in an important section of of Mark's gospel where he is showing what it means means to follow Jesus as his disciple. Now, part of the problem in hearing the word disciple is that we fill in that word because of our overuse of that term. If you've been around a church, we fill that in with our own content. But what I want to ask you to do this morning is to, instead of filling it in with your content, to use the word apprentice instead of disciple. Think apprentice, but not Donald Trump's reality TV show, okay? An apprentice of Jesus is someone who trusts Jesus first and foremost, and then follows his directions 
in order to learn to do the things that Jesus does. That's what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. And that's what Mark is trying to show in this section that we're looking at today in which this, this little piece that was read to us is, is found. So I want to simply do two things today. I want to look at the text of Mark 10. I want to draw some observations, make some observations. And then secondly, I want to ask the question, so what? How might this help us to live in God's kingdom as followers of Jesus? So if you're new to Grace, we've begun a series here on Sunday morning that's titled Living in God's Kingdom. And the kingdom of God is central to the Bible's storyline and especially to understanding Jesus. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus comes on the scene announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And as we've seen before in some previous uh, talks, when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about heaven and earth coming together under the governance of God. And when heaven and earth are brought back together under the governance of God, things work the way they're supposed to work. The world functions the way it's supposed to function. And this makes sense of what you see if you read the Gospels and you see Jesus doing these things that many people call miracles. Essentially what he's doing, he's showing what the world is supposed to look like when God is in charge. There's no more sickness, no more death. All these things that disrupt shalom, that disrupt the way the world is supposed to function. Jesus is pointing in those acts to the kingdom of God breaking into the world. Heaven and earth coming together under the governance of God and joy and peace and righteousness and all these things breaking into the world. And we've looked at that previously. So he not only announces this, but he also gives an invitation to act on that good news in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He says, repent, turn from your way of life and turn towards me and trust me. He says, repent and believe. In other words, this announcement of God's kingdom arriving in the person of Jesus is not meant to be dismissed like the many ads that we're bombarded with online and on TV and on the radio. See, I can can ignore an ad for a new $1 Taco Bell beefy crunch burrito made with Fritos, and it won't affect my life at all. In fact, I will probably extend my life by dismissing that, by not acting on that along with most of what's at Taco Bell. (laughs) But this announcement of, of good news of God's kingdom coming into this world in Jesus is more than a pop-up ad. It's more than a public service announcement. And it contains both invitation and challenge. And you can see this in the section read to us today from Mark's Gospel. So I'd like to invite you to turn there in your Bible. There's a blue Bible underneath your seat, and it's page 846. And I'm going to ask that you would open up a Bible, all right? I'm going to ask that you either open up a Bible on your app, or you open up a Bible underneath your seat today, okay? Because I'm going to go through the text, and I'm asking that you would have some skin in the game on this one. All right? Because... Even taking that first step to pay attention to the Bible might draw you in and might give God a chance to speak to you and to us through the text. And even having a text open in front of you, if your eye wanders, guess where it can wander to? The text, right? And you might see something that I might not see, or you may say, you know, I totally disagree with what he's talking about. And that's fine too, but at least you're looking at the text. So I want to, first of all, make some observations from the text As you're looking at the text, we're in Mark 10, verse 17. It begins, and I'm just going to briefly go through it again because it went by us the first time just by reading. I want you to see it this time. This man runs up to Jesus. He's concerned about life to come. 
He's no doubt Jewish because within Judaism there's a common belief that there was an age to come after this present age. And so this man identifies himself by his beliefs that he is Jewish. It's a very straightforward question. In verse 17 he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus rejects the man's flattery and he focuses on the seriousness of the question in verse 18. And then in verses 19 and 20... There's this conversation about keeping the commandments. And as you're looking at the text, this suggests that the man is serious about following God's directions. And Jesus doesn't disagree with him. In fact, the text goes on to say that Jesus loved him in verse 21. Further implying that the man is sincere in what he's saying to Jesus. And then in verse 22... Jesus says that the only thing standing between him and Jesus is the man's attachment to his possessions. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. A little bit of background here. In ancient times, if you had great wealth, it was a sign that you had great favor, great blessing from either the gods or God. So it was not viewed disparagingly. It was viewed commonly that you were someone who was a person who had great favor and great blessing. It was only a problem if wealthy people used their wealth for evil purposes. But here Jesus is saying that riches are an obstacle to a person's participation in the kingdom of God because the attachment to wealth can prevent a person from following Jesus. Jesus then emphasizes this in, a very, in very clear and strong terms so that no one misses it. Look down at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the camel and the eye of the needle have been discussed a lot within commentaries and by scholars, and I, and I think that the best place to land on that is that Jesus is basically using hyperbole. So it, it's really a word picture that's intended to show the, the impossibility of something. It's, it's absurd. It's, it's stretched beyond its limits in terms of how you're to understand this in order to demonstrate the impossibility of what he's talking about. And the disciples' response show that they get what he's saying, because in verse 26 it says, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? They're surprised that such good, wealthy people like this man will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies by stating that only God can give people the ability to part with their possessions for the sake of the kingdom of God. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The final exchange uh, between Peter and Jesus in verses 28 to 31 reveals that the central issue is about following Jesus. The central issue is about following Jesus. Notice verse 21. The man is called to follow Jesus initially. 
Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And notice the words, and come, follow me. The man is called to follow Jesus, not to pursue poverty for poverty's sake. Very important distinction there. In other words, the story is not a criticism of wealth. Because the story also reveals that even obedience to the Old Testament law and great social and economic standing are not substitutes for responding to the call to follow Jesus. See, the question that the man faces is whether he will follow Jesus if it means giving up his possessions. And we discover that his possessions are an obstacle, making it hard for him to enter the kingdom of God, verse 23. Precisely because they distract him from responding to Jesus' invitation to follow him. Larry Hurtado, New Testament scholar, writes these words. The issue is Jesus, commenting on this passage. The issue is Jesus, the one who assures participation in the kingdom of God. And the point is that following him and joining his mission are to be put ahead of all other interests. So Jesus finishes with assurances that those who do respond to his call to follow him, his invitation to follow him, will receive support from other people, from homes, from fields. In other words, it's kind of a a riff on Matthew 6.33 where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all those things that you worry about in life that you basically live your life from birth to death worrying about and setting your life about to to control what you'll eat, what you'll wear, where you'll live. He says, all those things I will provide for you as you seek first my kingdom. And I think he's saying the same thing here. Again, follow me and let me provide for you. I will take care of what you need. And finally, he repeats the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. Verse 31, for many who are first will be last and the last first. So that's the first thing I wanted to do today. I wanted to make some observations. Walk walk through the text with you and just make some simple observations. And the second thing I want to do with you today is to ask the question, so what? So what? How might this inform would-be disciples today? In other words, how might it help us live in God's kingdom? The series is about living in God's kingdom, not knowing things about God's kingdom. There's a huge difference between those two. It certainly involves knowing some things, but we want to press into living in God's kingdom. And what I see from this text is that there's both invitation and challenge to living in God's kingdom. There's both invitation and challenge to living in God's kingdom. First, the challenge. The challenge involves identifying any attachments that might prevent you from following Jesus. It could be money. Could be your career path, your identity, your family, your children, your friends, your attachment to your dream home, your dream location that you want to live in one day, the attachment to your dream of what life should be for you. So the challenge is to identify the attachments that might prevent you from following Jesus. 
And then there's the invitation. Jesus says, come, follow me. He says, be my apprentice. I'm offering you the opportunity of a lifetime to partner with me in bringing life and hope and healing and reconciliation to the world. Did you notice the man's response in verse 22? Look at the text again. He walks away from the opportunity with sadness. Not anger, not disgust, not being offended, but with sadness. That's where reading the text multiple times helps Because it's like, put yourself into this. Why would the man be sad? It appears to me that he's torn between two worlds. It's like tearing up the winning super lotto ticket and walking away. Only in this case, it's it's the guaranteed, the guaranteed life of spiritual riches that is offered in following Jesus. So Jesus is alerting anyone who might follow him. He's saying, I think that there are two kingdoms to live in. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And the kingdom of self is the world lived from the perspective of myself. It's the, it's the me world. In our culture... It's the world we create, because in our culture, unlike some other cultures, we have the ability to create a world for ourselves. It can include our friends, our travels, our hobbies, our possessions, our unique style. And you carefully curate and you manage this world, because after all, it's your domain. It's under your control. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we generally have say over is our kingdom. And our having the say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. I think you can see the kingdom of self in play in the way people live by what Mark Sayers describes as the cell phone contract worldview. In his book, The Trouble with Paris, Mark Sayers writes these words. The cell phone contract worldview tells us don't get stuck in a relationship. Even though the person you're with is attractive, someone better could be just around the corner. Somewhere there are better friends, better sex, a better experience, a better product, so don't get tied down. Relationships and commitment limit your options. As sociologist Zygmunt Bauman shows us, our hyper-consumer culture constantly tells us, don't let yourself be caught. Avoid embraces that are too tight. Remember the deeper and denser your attachments, commitments, engagements, the greater your risk. We run from those promises and covenants that humans have made to each other for thousands of years because they frighten us to death. Many today fear such commitment-based social institutions because self now takes precedence over commitment. We must not become entangled in commitments because they could limit our options on finding something better. 
very, very profound and prophetic words. As I reflected on having read this book, another book of his, but especially these words right here, I think that the crisis facing the church right now in the present and that will be in the future is not a crisis of belief, but a crisis of commitment. I think the question is, will we trust Jesus? Will we trust Jesus? Will we truly trust Jesus? And I think that's what's at stake in Mark chapter 10, because prior to these words in this section, prior to this, Jesus talks in Mark 10, 15, about receiving the kingdom as a child. Look at the words. I'll just take you there. Verse 13 of Mark 10, same text. They were bringing children to him and that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He's indignant. He has emotions. He's upset. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The disciples are missing out on this fact that it involves trust. The kingdom of God is grounded upon trust. I think the crisis of the church, both now and in the future, is a crisis of trust. Will we truly trust Jesus? So you enter the kingdom of God by letting go of attachments in the kingdom of self in favor of trusting someone other than yourself, namely Jesus. And you live in God's kingdom by trusting Jesus. Jesus. So I want to leave you with a question and two resources. In light of this, here's the question that this seems to raise. Do I... Do you honestly believe that Jesus and his way, his kingdom, is the best way that you could live in this life? Do, you, do I, do you honestly believe that Jesus and his way and his kingdom is the best way you could live in this life? And that's followed with two resources. Here's the first resource. One of the most effective ways to shape our desire for the kingdom of God over the kingdom of self is to immerse ourselves in this scripture. Reminding ourselves of what God has actually promised and of his trustworthy character. You see, here's the reality, folks. Just a couple more, two more minutes. Every one of us is being discipled by someone. We're all being discipled by someone or something out in our culture. And whatever it is or whoever it is that you're being discipled by is shaping your desires. And you give yourself to that. And the more you give yourself to that, the more your desires are shaped by that. To live in God's kingdom means that we have to have our desires reshaped by Jesus. It's not automatic. 
You don't just simply pray a prayer and go, I'm a Christian, boom, my desires are all reshaped. No. It requires a lifetime of chiseling away, of recognizing where I'm inclined to go towards the kingdom of self yet one more time and asking God to shape my desires away from that and towards the things that he has promised. And then there's a question, well, if he's promised it, how do I know I shouldn't play odd and even on the roulette wheel just to cover my bases? In other words, how do I know if he really can be trusted? And that is the issue. You ever thought about this, that this is a really crazy thing that we're professing to do? I do. I woke up this morning thinking about it. Not just the crazy thing I'm doing standing up here and talking. That's an insane thing. But the crazy thing is believing that there is a God and throwing all in in this life to follow him. Because he's revealed himself in some character named Jesus who I have never seen with my eyes. Who supposedly died on a Roman cross and was raised from the dead. And I wasn't there to see it. But a bunch of people have said that it happened. And I'm believing them. And I'm throwing all in in this life to trust that what God has said is true. So the way to feed the desires for the kingdom of God is to immerse yourself in the promises of God and the pages of God's word and the character of God. And if nothing else, just read. Don't try to understand everything, but just have a sheet of paper. Promises, character of God. Anytime you come across a promise, anytime you come across the character of God, just write it down. You will be so overwhelmed with blessing. It's a great exercise. I know of one man whose life was, con- was turned upside down by taking some time away. He had just hit rock bottom. He went away and he just immersed himself in the promises of God and came back. His life was so transformed that what he did from that point on just reached out and touched hundreds of thousands of people for Jesus. Just because he's immersed in the promises of God. So that's the first resource. The second resource is verse 27. That little phrase, for all things are possible with God. And that, that's been thrown around. It's like one of those calendar verses, you know. You go by, we used to have things called Christian bookstores. And you would you'd go to the Christian bookstore and you would find these cards. And they had like birds and they didn't do unicorns because that wouldn't be Christian. But they had birds and little beautiful pictures. And they have like these kind of little nice verses that fit everything. And they're all out of context. So a person like me came in and just was basically just angry. I wanted to turn over the tables and that kind of stuff. But if you look at this verse in context, this is not a promise for your job or for the lottery or anything else. This is, this is in context. It has a very specific intention. When Jesus is saying all things are possible with God, he is talking about the fact that God, God, and God alone can give us the ability to release our attachments in life to truly follow Jesus. 
See, that was the problem the man had. He was attached to something that kept him from following Jesus. And, and the disciples are going, well, then who can be saved? And he's saying, God can give a person the ability to release their attachment to anything that might keep them from following Jesus. See, the Spirit has been poured out to change our desires so that we would follow Jesus. That's the beautiful thing. If you're saying, you know what, it's so hard, or I just don't feel like it, or whatever, the Spirit of God has been poured out to transform our desires so that we would want to follow Jesus. So my question to you that I leave you with, a response question, is what might Jesus be calling you to release and trust him for? What might Jesus be calling you to release and trust him for? And probably the first thing that comes to mind might be the thing that Jesus wants to touch this morning. Jesus, I ask that you would drive out fear right now. The fear that if we truly trusted you that whatever it is that we're attached to, a future dream of where we might live or the way we might live or what we might be like or our identity or whatever it is that we have these, these dreams and aspirations for that, that you might spoil all that. And so I ask that you would instead fill us with the warmth of your grace, the assurance of your love, the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are for us, and if you are for us, then who can be against us? And I ask for each of the people here, many who are my friends, who I know and I love, that if you ask us to open up our hands, you want to replace it with something that's so far better. So I ask that through your spirit, you would give us the ability to trust you. To trust you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.